0: Our speaker today is Jamie Yassif, uh, who serves as the vice president of the Nuclear Threat Initiative's Global Biological Policy and Programs Initiative. Um, Prior to her role at NTI, where she works on uh, reducing catastrophic risks and strengthening pandemic preparedness, uh, she also was a program officer at Open Philanthropy, uh, where she oversaw over $40 million in biosecurity grants. Jamie has also worked at the Department of Defense and uh, at, the, at HHS uh, across the realms of nuclear security and health security. Uh, to, in today's talk, Jamie's focus will be on how we can prevent states from developing and using bioweapons. Uh, so without further ado, uh, please welcome Jamie Yassif. <laughs>
1: Hi everyone, thanks so much for joining and thanks so much to the organizers for the opportunity to participate. It's always great to come to EA Global. This is my first time at EA Global Bay Area. Um, and uh, I used to live in the Bay, so it's really, it feels like home to me here, so it's good to be home. Um, so this is, uh, I think you guys, some of you guys may have seen me give talks on biosecurity and other areas about sort of tech governance and how do we avoid exploitation of dual-use bioscience uh, by malicious actors. And I, that stuff is super important, but that's not what I'm gonna talk about today. I'm delving into a relatively new area. Um, I think the, I'll just, you know, we'll get into the details in a moment, but I will say part of the reason I think that this is a really important area, well, so this is an important area because I think this, you know, for people who care about reducing global catastrophic biological risks, state bioweapons, development, and use is definitely a key driver of that risk, and I think there's a lot more thinking that we need to do to figure out really concretely like what are the most effective things we could do to, to prevent proliferation of state bioweapons programs and sort of keep this risk down. Um, I will note that there's a real glaring absence of a rigorous debate or academic discourse in the community. I mean, if you look at the analogous discourse in the nuclear security community, there are decades of literature, people writing about how you disincentivize states from developing and using nuclear weapons, how do you deter people in academia, in government, in in NGOs, lots of ink has been spilled. But if you look at this space, Very little. And I think that's like, I think it would be really valuable for us to really build a more rigorous discourse about this and think as a community uh, about what we can do about this challenge. And so that's what's motivating me to to delve into these questions. So I'm gonna, this talk is divided roughly into three parts. Uh, I'm gonna start just with a high level overview of different sources of global catastrophic biological risks and how the state BW risk fits into that. Um, Then I'll dig a little bit into the theory of change. You know, how do we really think concretely about uh, making state bioweapons development and use unattractive to them? How do we disincentivize it? Um, And then digging more deeply into the the basically sneak preview, uh, new surprises. I'm going to talk about uh, improving transparency, attribution capabilities, and fostering accountability. Okay. Sources of global catastrophic biological risks. So it's worth just to sort of Um, Level set, I mean, I think most people in the room have heard of the term GCBR. For my purposes, this is a definition I tend to use. Um, A biological event of tremendous scale that could cause severe damage to human civilization, uh, potentially derailing it or threatening its long-term survival. Some people talk about it in quantitative terms. I think a qualitative definition is helpful. Um, Even people who talk about it in quantitative terms tend to disagree about what are the lower and upper bounds of this. So, potential sources of GCBRs, you know, in theory, uh, they could come from naturally emerging infectious disease outbreaks, some sort of catastrophic accidental misuse of science and technology, or deliberate uh, misuse, uh, like a bioweapons attack by a state or a non state actor. Um, We at NTI really focus on our, our bio team, we really focus on dealing primarily on dealing with these two categories, basically human-caused biological events. Um, it is, you know, and we work a lot to, to think about how to prevent these from happening. Um, it's not to say that I think like a GCBR from a naturally emerging infectious disease outbreak is impossible. I do happen to hold the view that I think it's less likely than a, a um, it, that a naturally emerging infectious disease outbreak is less likely to cause a GCBR than an engineered pathogen. Um, and that's why, you know, that's why I make the case that these sources are more likely to lead to a GCBR. Um, you know, obviously, states can also cause accidents, not just a deliberate misuse, and that's part of the risk space. And again, I'm going to focus on states for the purposes of this talk. Okay, so... Um, it probably hasn't escaped your attention that this is this topic has been more in the news lately um, than it has been in the past. Um, there's been a lot of, I mean, I think this community has cared about state bioweapons risks for quite some time and has been focused on it, but it's definitely been in the news more recently um, just because of the war in Ukraine, all the disinformation from, from Russia um, making allegations that the United States and Ukraine are engaged in illicit bioweapons programs. Some people, at the, f- there was a period of time where people worried that Russia was pushing out all this disinformation to create cover for them, they themselves to carry a covert bioweapons attack. Um, and so uh, I would say the combination of this uh, I mean, and then since that time, I mean, Russia has done a lot in, in the context of the UN system and the Biological Weapons Convention to continue to tell lies about this and trying to use the UN machinery um, to to really make a big deal about this. Um, and so it is, uh, I think, top of mind to, among a lot of people. This this issue set that combined with the fact that we've been dealing with COVID, I think, is really putting bio risk issues. Um, at the top of mind for people, which is, I think, in addition to being dangerous and troubling, it's also creating some political openings to drive change. Um, so in terms of, I think if you want to think about how to prevent states or disincentivize states from pursuing bioweapons, uh, bio it's really useful to think about what motivates them in the first place. So, you know, one type of motivation is just misperception um, leading to arms race dynamic, arms racing dynamic. So, if states are worried that their adversaries are pursuing a bioweapons program and maybe have bad information, that could tip them, that could shape their cost benefit calculus and tip them from a place of fear, thinking that maybe they should do that as well, to sort of, so there isn't some sort of asymmetric um, dynamic. Um, Then there are also uh, tactical and strategic. uh, strategic considerations, so maybe some countries could think that they could use a, some sort of targeted bioweapons attack with limited reach to achieve uh, achieve objectives, um, certain political, military, or economic objectives. Um, you could also think of it, you know, some people talk about a bioweapon as a, a poor person's uh, nuclear weapon, so, you know, the getting a nuclear weapon is really hard, the barriers to access are higher, and so perhaps, People have posited perhaps some countries that have limited resources might um, instead resort to getting a bioweapon as a means of deterrence. And then finally, even if a national government doesn't set the policy goal explicitly of developing a biological weapon, perhaps, you know, uh, you know, people who have studied political science know that large bureaucracies have irrational outcomes. <laughs> um, uh, in, and so sometimes there's bureaucratic competition for resources, and that can drive Um, irrational outcomes within within a large bureaucracy, and that could also lead to certain parts of the bureaucracy going kind of off the reservation and doing things that aren't necessarily in the national interest. Um, So in terms of the kinds of, you know, I've spent some time since I joined NTI, asking people, you know, how how seriously do you take state bioweapons risks? um, And what kind of scenarios are you most concerned about? And these are the kinds of answers I got. A lot of people think that some sort of, a uh, sneaky, deniable gray zone attack is very likely that states might try to do something covertly and deny accountability um, to cause damage to their adversary without it tracing back to themselves. Um, increasingly people are talking about um, the possibility that perhaps um, a state could take advantage of advanced advancing bioscience and biotechnology to carry out some sort of targeted ethnic attack against a certain group. Um, or um, there's been a lot of discussion also about economic attack on agriculture or what have you. Um, And then there's always the option that a state could sort of develop a bioweapon as a deterrent without the intent to use it and be overconfident in their biosafety provisions and there could be an accidental release um, and that could have catastrophic global consequences. The other thing I wanna stress here is I don't think Almost any state probably knows, I don't think there's any country around the world that has a a vested interest in creating a global catastrophic biological risk. That's not consistent with rational political or economic or military motivations. I think think the kind of risk we're facing here is that in pursuit of these more arguably rational objective, something could go wrong. There could be an accident, or there could be a belief that there would be a targeted attack, and then in fact, biology is just more complicated um, than we recognize, and maybe it could spread farther and wider than it was intended. So there is significant risk here. Okay, um, so the, this talk is not really focused on non-state actors, but I think it's useful to look at the, the, the sort of characterization of this space to understand how these are different. I think a lot of times because this field is underdeveloped, there hasn't been as much structured thinking about the different types of risk that non-state actors versus state actors pose, and they kind of smush them all together and talk. But I actually think, because the, the calculus is really different, the ways that you counter these different kinds of risks is actually really different, and it's constructive to think about, to understand the differences. So I think the issue here with non-state actors is the technical hurdles to engineering pathogens are declining over time. And so it's just getting easier the barriers to access are lower, and so there are more people who, in theory, if they wanted to, could gain the means to develop and use a, a dangerous biological weapon. Um, and so that sort of that's, that's shaping the capabilities and access to technology consideration. Um, on the intention side, you know, it's possible that a lot of groups weren't really paying attention to bioweapons as, as an as an option for pursuing their objectives. Um, but but you know, a lot of people have posited, and I think it's plausible that. Covid may have made this worse by highlighting how vulnerable the globe is to pathogens, how just abysmal the national level and global responses have been, um, and just showing how damaging it can be globally. If you were trying to cause global damage, Covid-19 is quite, um, alar- you know, quite uh, illustrative. And so, um, and then finally, I think that there is pretty clear evidence that there are a number of non-state actor groups that exist that have apocalyptic objectives, um, and you know. Uh, it's reasonable to you just have to assume that you know it's reasonable to assume that they would use biology if given the opportunity. And so, really, it's about like I can think for for non-state actors. It's really about constraining capabilities, and that's basically um, I think in, as we think about these uh, these two types of risks, and you want to think about them in a sort of structured way. That's the argument I would make for states. Um, the best way to stop powerful States that with a lot of resources is by making bioweapons development and use unattractive, to shaping their intention. For non-state actors, um, you should just expect that there are gonna be some non-state actors out there that are like really hard to basically nearly impossible to deter, and you basically have to constrain their capabilities. Um, I think on the margins, it may be possible to constrain the capabilities of some states. But I think it's ones that are already under heavy sanctions and have limited resources. I think the most effective way to really prevent state proliferation of bioweapons is by making it unappealing in the first place. Okay. And that's what I'm going to focus on. Okay, so how do we do that? (laughs) Um, So I think, as I said before, I think there are basically... I think there are two kind of levers here. One is for states that just might have misperceptions and incorrect information about what their adversaries are up to, trying to increase transparency and reduce those misperceptions as much as possible to avoid um, uh, arms racing dynamics that might otherwise result from it. On the other hand, you know, there might be states that it's not really about that. it's just they think that there's some utility, and so it's just it's trying to say um, there's a cost. we will you know there's a cost to doing this, and like. Um, you want to sort of deny any potential utility and increase the cost, and that's deterrence. So to prevent misperceptions and arms racing, um, a really important piece of that is transparency. Um, to, for deterrence, um, it's uh, for a state to sort of be disincentivized from developing a weapon. They have to believe that they would be caught and they'd be held accountable. So that's you know that's common sense. Um, and and you know, I think an important point, you know, some people who are entering the space, including or some colleagues who've been in the space for quite a long time, will say, oh well, you know, doesn't the UN already do that? Doesn't the BWC have that covered? Can't we just like get the BWC to just have more money or work a little harder? Can't they, don't they have it covered? Why are you raising this? And I, I would say You know, I think the existing international institutions that we have in place are critically important, absolutely necessary, far from sufficient. I think that there are a lot of weaknesses in the system um, and we need to do a lot of work to really get it to where it needs to go. And so I'll, I'll sort of use this map that I laid out a moment ago and talk through the pieces that are already in place and what I think some of the weaknesses are. So for transparency, The main um, measure in place in the context of the BWC is confidence-building measures. And so this is basically, I think um, some states think it's mandatory, some states think it's optional, but basically countries decide to submit paperwork that describes, uh, there's like a form that the BWC has that describes what kind of bioscience research facilities they have, and they outline it, and they send it to the BWC. Um, The the participation rate in this is kind of low, and also the, the forms are really out of, out of date, and so they're not really useful information um, for, for these purposes. And also, there's no real mechanism that the BWC can actually use to act on that information. So it's kind of, it's kind of there are a lot of issues with it. Um, then there's voluntary peer review. So a number of uh, BWC states parties have said, we can do better. Let's, um, let's voluntarily open up our sites to visits from foreign diplomats to show that we're transparent and try to build some confidence. I think that's a really great program. I think there's a lot of room to build on it. Um, it is very much a coalition of the willing. Um, and I think it's not quite as robust as it could be, but there is an opportunity to expand on it. Uh, okay, attribution. Um, so the two mechanisms that we have um, are on the one, so it's basically the spectrum on the one hand you've got the World Health Organization that has um, the mandate to you know they're going to be the first ones on the ground if there's any kind of biological event they have the mandate to um, under the international health regulations to assess um, whole range the origins of a whole range of events so they're not necessarily constrained from a policy perspective but in reality they're Um, The comparative advantage, and what they're really good at, is is assessing uh, naturally emerging infectious disease outbreaks. It's actually really hard for both operational and political reasons for them to go far down the line and looking into deliberate events. Um, Then on the other hand, you've got the UN Secretary General's mechanism. That's under the authority of the UN Secretary General, and it was created to assess allegations of deliberate use of chemical weapons or biological weapons. It's been used, I think, three times for chem, but never for bio. Um, the bar, you know, part of the issue here is that the bar is really, really high. And in order to actually trick for the Secretary General to trigger this mechanism, someone has to be say, to say, make an allegation in the UN system, they carried out a bioweapons attack, I make an accusation, and then the, 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 the Secretary General will investigate. Well, in order to make that kind of allegation with, with like seriousness, there's a pretty high bar to get there, and that hasn't happened. Um, yeah, so there, um, there are both, so there's a gap between these two organizations, and they're also, weakness, like the UN Secretary General is great, but it is not actually as centralized and as robust as it could be. So it's it's supported through in-kind contributions by a group of countries called the Friends of the UN Secretary General's mechanism. Um, it's a dis- sort of distributed capability. And so it's becoming more and more operational, but I would argue that it could use significantly more resources um, than it has right now. And I think that there are there could be some more centralized organizational heft that isn't really there. So it's great, but um, in addition to sort of filling the gaps between those two mechanisms, I think we have to strengthen both of them. And then for accountability, I mean, there isn't really a defined process. We know that if there's something serious happen and there, you, know, you can take an allegation to the UN Security Council, um, but we also know that every member of the Security Council has veto power. So this is a very political Issue, right? I mean, so anytime I've asked people about the accountability piece here, they basically said, "Look, it's going to come down to who the, who who is the accused state, and who are their friends, um, and in um, a political debate where if you're t- if you're close to you know either Russia or the China or the United States, they're going to sort of take a side in this argument about whether you're you're culpable based on their political affiliations, and we need some like that's going to be really tough, and we need something better." I would argue. And that's a really hard problem. Um, the other thing is, you know, just talking about the BWC. I think you know, people who care about biosecurity all like we all love the BWC. We want it to be stronger, we want it to be better than it is. Um, I think that there are, you know, it's absolutely essential for upholding the norm against bioweapons development and use. Um, but there are weaknesses. So I think many people know that its annual budget is only approximately a million and a half dollars. Um, it has a small secretariat, a implementation support unit, currently has three staff. I think they just got clearance to, uh, at the last review conference to hire a fourth person. Um, woo! Um, that's a lot smaller than the IAEA or the OPCW. Um, there's no operational division associated with the BWC at the moment, um, and none, not one coming soon. Um, there's also, you know, basically at the BWC, when they make decisions, it's a consensus-based decision-making process. So any one country can just shut the whole thing down. Um, it's really hard to make progress um, in that kind of dynamic. Um, and then you have political groupings among states' parties um, that are legacy of the Cold War. You've got the Western bloc, the Eastern bloc, and the non-aligned movement, and they very much behave as blocs when they're debating various policy issues. And it's not always necessarily... It's uh, it's not always necessarily a, a debate where everyone's really trying really hard to be the, make the BWC the strongest. It's a very political conversation that makes it hard. Um, and then I think you know most people probably know that the BWC, unlike the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty and the Chemical Weapons Convention, does not have a verification protocol. Um, you know I think it's debatable whether full verification with a capital V is possible, but there's a lot of room for improvement above and beyond the confidence-building measures that I mentioned. Okay. So you know, as I noted a few minutes ago, I think there's a political opening for ambitious proposals to address the kind of gaps that I'm talking about. Um, and I think we should think big and we should try um, we should try to make some shots on gold to really drive pretty major systemic change to fill these gaps. And the reason I, I think these, this opening exists is I think partially the war in Ukraine and the Russian disinformation campaign has really elevated us on the agenda. Um, and I also think that the um, The challenges that the international community has faced in the wake of COVID, both in terms of response and the ongoing debate about origins, again, has really highlighted the weaknesses of the system, and I think opened people's minds to the possibility of change. And this window isn't going to be here forever, and so I think we should take advantage of it. Okay, so as I said before, the goal of enhancing transparency is avoiding misperceptions about other nations' bioscience activities uh, to avoid arms racing dynamics. So there's, you know, there's a near-term opportunity for, for like marginal improvement um, by improving confidence-building measures. Um, I think that's, that's pretty tractable. I think that wouldn't be very politically divisive, but I don't think it's going to drive major change. Um, I think long-term, the bigger, the bigger win could be um, Looking at it more ambitious approaches to enhancing transparency. Right now, as a a result of the BWC Review Conference, the Ninth Review Conference, it was more successful than I anticipated, and they had actually they set up a BWC experts working group. Um, and trans, like basically verification and enhanced transparency is on the agenda, so there's a hook there. There's work that we could do to feed into that process, and there might be a recept- more receptive audience than what we might have had five years ago. The other thing that was really interesting is the United States government, which has long opposed verification, showed up, um, I think, at the meeting of states parties about a year and a half ago, and basically signaled as part of their statement a willingness to discuss transparency. Um, And a lot of people perceive that US objections to this discussion were a major political obstacle. And so by doing that, that also created a lot of enthusiasm momentum and openness to this. and I'd say, you know, as I said before, I think there's an opportunity to build on the volunteer peer, voluntary peer review mechanisms that states parties have been engaged in to make them, you know, to engage more countries, to make them more in depth, to make them more technical, not just diplomatic visits, but some, something that's a bit more penetrating. Um, and that's something that governments could do possibly in collaboration with civil society to figure out how to do that. But I also think that there's a ton that we can do from outside of government. Um, working with industry, working with scientific researchers, um, NGOs, to think about the explore the art of what's possible. Um, there are a lot of technical questions, you know, science and technology has advanced advanced a ton in the last 20 years since the verification protocol discussion collapsed. And there's a lot of cool there are a lot of cool things that we could maybe do in terms of on-site assessment and off-site signals uh, collection to get a better sense of what's going on within research facilities in countries around the world. Um, And then I think we can do some really creative thinking about, how do you provide access to um, industrial research facilities, like biotech companies, um, on the one hand, to give enough confidence that, that there's nothing... Um, uh, nothing afoul going on, but also like, protecting the intellectual property of the company so they feel like they aren't just, just a bunch of uh, international spies that are trying to steal their IPs. That's like, a really hard thing to do, but I think there's a lot of cool thinking we could do into how to make that work, and we can learn lessons from how that's done in the nuclear inspections and how that's done in inspections for the OPCW. Um, and I think that you know, we're interested in exploring this at NTI, and I think if people in this community want to look at it, I think it would be productive, and I think it's a good time. Um, strengthening attribution, again, this is important for deterrence, I think, for pretty clear reasons. Um, um, it's also important for countering disinformation. Um so for example, if 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 there had been some sort of Biologi- let's imagine a horrific uh, event. Let's imagine there had been some sort of biological event that occurred in Ukraine, um, and the, you know, the West was accusing Russia of doing it, and Russia was accusing the West of doing it. If we actually had a valid mechanism in place to run it to ground, I think that'd be pretty important. Um, And I talked already uh, before about why I think the WHO outbreak uh, investigation capabilities and the UN Secretary General's mechanism, they're they're both really important, um, but we have to strengthen both of those mechanisms and we also have to fill gaps between them. So this is something we've been working on at NTI, this joint assessment mechanism concept. We're developing this idea of a mechanism that could fill the gap. So this like gaping divide between WHO on the one hand, that Secretary General's mechanism on the other hand. Um, we discovered this through a tabletop exercise that we did at the Munich Security Conference in 2020, right at the beginning of the pandemic. Um, and it became very clear that this wasn't just an academic um, exercise, but in fact, this ch- like this gap that we identified was very real. And I think we're still grappling with our inability internationally to have a really robust system for running, to, like finding the truth. Um, and so, you know, the way that we we're trying to put meat on the bones of this proposal. We have a couple working groups thinking about the policy and operational considerations as well as the technical considerations. Um, You know, the mandate is pretty straightforward. We wanna establish the facts regarding the origin of an an unusual outbreak. Um, We think that at least to start, it should be a small unit inside the UN Secretary General's office and it would be established under their authority. So not like through some kind of vote, which I think would be very difficult in the current geopolitical environment, but through the Secretary General has the authority to establish a team like this in their office without a vote if he believes that there is sufficient political support for it. Um, you know, you basically need uh, two modes of operation. You need a peacetime uh, team that is collecting data and doing useful, performing useful functions. Um, and, uh, and then um, you need the ability to rapidly launch an investigation if this mechanism is triggered during a crisis. Um, in terms of the kinds of data that could be collected on an ongoing basis, I think there are basically two buckets. There's the scientific data that tells you about the pathogen, its epidemiology, its genetic sequence, um, all that stuff, and that's stuff that those are kinds of data that the public health community is already going to be collecting anyway. I think there's room for improvement there, but we're not trying to recreate that or compete with that. That's the role of the public health community and the scientific community. I think the room, the where there's room for innovation. Is this non-traditional data stream? Thinking about financial data, satellite imagery, social media, what can we learn about human intentions and organizations and how they behave and what you know, what are they trying to achieve and what have they been up to? Uh, I think if we could get better at developing existing capabilities and validating them for these purposes, I think there's some really useful information we could glean there. And there's been analogous work um, that we've done at NTI to look at some at financial data streams to detect proliferation of nuclear materials. So I, I think that's a really important area to explore. Um, uh, and then the other last thing I would say for this is um, we want to build on a, you know, we're not trying to create a comp- bureaucratic competition between the WHO and the UN Secretary General's mechanism. And this really think of it as an integrated system where they're uh, cooperating and sharing resources, because fundamentally that's going to be more useful over the long term, and that's going to be mo- like operationally more effective and also politically more viable. Um, in terms of fostering accountability, you know, states have to believe they would, they would be held accountable, and the cost would be unacceptably high. In addition to being caught, um, but there's no defined mechanism for this, as I mentioned before. Um, and I think consensus-based approaches for or like existing political structures make it really easy for a political group or a single entity to shut it down. And we need to find other ways to not to not have that be a failure mode. Um, they're brought set of tools at our disposal, economic sanctions, political pressure, military action. We just have to figure out how do we use this basket of tools in a way that is legitimate, but, but is actually strong enough to be a deterrent and is considered to be proportional. Um, you know, if you look at failures, you know, if you look at failures from, um, uh, for an accountability following well, like multiple well-documented cases of um, the use of chemical weapons, that really undermines the norms enshrined the Chemical Weapons Convention. And I think if something analogous happened on the bio side, there would be a real problem. So, you know, we know that, um, for example, Syria used chemical weapons and but the, you know, the joint investigative mechanism was not voted to be renewed. It was kind of shut down. Russia has, been u- has used chemical weapons in Skripal and against Alexei Navalny and elsewhere. Hasn't really been held accountable in a meaningful way. And North Korea used a um, nerve agent to kill Kim Jong-un's brother. Um, again, um, so when you have an international norm that says you're not supposed to do this and it keeps getting violated and there is accountability, that undermines the norm and it, like, it creates openings for more violations. And that's dangerous. Um, so I would, you know, I would say, you know, if there's a violation of the BWC, it's really important for states parties to demonstrate political will, share political will, and like, coordinate with each other, um, and, and a united front. Um, and, and it requires, we can't just lean back and rely on the UN system, I think individual countries have to be willing to take action, I think, to make that a realistic pro- po- like, possibility. Um, I think this is a really hard problem. I don't have a ready-made solution. I'm mostly point- pointing to a gap, but I think it's an important gap, and we should think pretty hard about what we might be able to do about it. Um, there's an interesting model um, in the form of the International Partnership Against Impunity for the uh, Use of Chemical Weapons. It's a group of, I think, several dozen countries that have basically declared they have a zero tolerance policy for chemical weapons use, and they're coordinating on this. I don't think it's necessarily perfect, but I, you know, I, I'm like. I think we need to look at models that have been used in other spaces and see how that can inform what we might do here. Um, So, I wanna make sure we leave time for discussion. Thanks so much for your attention and I'm happy to take questions.
0: Thanks, Jamie, thanks for your talk. Um, I think we'll prioritize questions that came in that had to do with sort of work that might be useful and like specifically how, the, how people in this community or in this room can contribute to, to that effort. Great. Um, and so, so one of the questions um, here is the, um, you mentioned there were policy and technical considerations mm-hmm. um, in some of your proposals. Mm-hmm. Uh, what are some of the technical or research initiatives that would be most helpful mm-hmm. uh, that you, that someone in this room could possibly contribute to?
1: Yeah, so I think there are a couple of things that come to mind. And so first of all, I should have flagged this earlier. I think there's some work that has already happened in this community looking at whether or not we can detect we can look at the genetic sequences of pathogens and detect whether they've been engineered. I think that's like awesome. And you know, I think a number of people in this community have been involved in advancing that work, and that's exactly the kind of work that we need to continue to, to do. So that's a classic example. But there are other things that we could could be done. So for the joint assessment mechanism, I mentioned that there are all these non-traditional data streams. I think that there's a ton of interesting technical work that could be done there. How can we look at open source um, and publicly available data data sources that aren't that aren't tied to pathogens per se, and figure how like figure out how can we use that to um, to understand. The capabilities, behaviors, and intentions of key actors that, that might be involved in some, you know, that have the capability to do something nasty and make sure that like we have reasonable confidence that they're they're not, um, and that we would de- that we might be able to detect um, something if there were unusual activity. So the kinds of things I have in mind, so for example, there was a there was some really interesting work early on in COVID. There were some scientists that used satellite imagery to look at the number of cars that were parked around various hospitals in Wuhan. Um, and they basically said this show this like this indicates that maybe there was something going. You know, it doesn't. It's not like pointing to any sort of foul play, but it does. It, it does show that there was more activity at the hospitals in Wuhan than we might have been led to believe based on the information that we're circulating. I think um, looking at satellite imagery to sort of learn new things about how humans are moving and acting is a really important area to explore, and I think there's a lot we could do there. Um, another example is you know. Uh, NTI did a project with a group called C4ADS, and they were asking the question of whether they could look at financial data streams to uh, detect proliferation of nuclear materials. Um, so they basically took financial data. I think they used some sort of deep deep learning-based uh, analysis, and they, they, they showed actually proof of principle that they could use that kind of approach. And so I'd be really interested in exploring whether you could look at financial data flows in the biospace and see what kind of... Activities you could attack. So those are some examples. Um, I think there's and and that kind of open-source analysis I think is useful for The specific context of the joint assessment mechanism. It might be useful for for verification It might be so useful for open-source intelligence. I think it's robustly good and worth exploring Um, In terms of verification, I think there's also some really interesting technical questions. How you know, how do we? Um, conduct on-site visits, what kind of samples or data should we collect in order to assess what's going on if we detect dual-use bioscience research going on? Um, What what should we be doing on-site? What should we be doing off-site? How do we balance the tension between wanting to get a lot of transparency and information while still protecting the intellectual property of, of the facilities being visited. I think there are some interesting technical questions that we could look at there. I know that a number of people have started to look at it. Um, I know that iGEM, I don't know if Tessa's, oh Tessa's in the room, Tessa, hey, uh, Tessa organized an event with Piers Millet at uh, Wilton Park where we had two days of discussions about that. I thought that was really productive. I'd love to see more of that.
0: Yeah, um, this is uh, a slight digression, but since we're on the topic mm-hmm. of dual-use research, yeah. uh, could you speak more broadly on, on how that poses a challenge to the element of transparency that we need mm-hmm. to see.
1: Yeah, so I think, you know, when I said before that I think we can, we can do better than we're doing right now in terms of transparency, we can do enhanced transparency, and how I feel uncertain whether verification with a capital V is possible, there are a couple reasons for that. One of them is the fundamental dual use nature of bioscience and biotechnology research and development. Even if you did really intrusive inspections that crossed a whole bunch of lines, um, and you knew what was going on in a material way within a facility, that doesn't necessarily give you 100% confidence about whether there's a violation of the BWC underway or not. And so there's there's just a causes fundamental uncertainty and that's a real challenge and I think that's one of the reasons verification's really tough. Um, then there's also the fact that um, there are a lot of facilities around the world, tens of thousands, and so we just don't have the time and resources to go to all of them um, and and confidently assess that there's nothing to see here. And so that's another challenge.
0: Got it. Um, How optimistic are you about the WHO pandemic treaty? And is there any work or advocacy that you think the EA community should contribute to around that this year? Hmm. Um, Trying to figure out what the, how to... So
1: I think it's interesting, I think it's, the fact that the pandemic treaty is being renegotiated, I think, is a sign of um, the things that I was saying before. It's, it's a symptom of the fact that people really care about ability to prevent and respond to pandemics. And I think the international community is really exercised and focused on it. Um, I'm hopeful that something useful comes out of it. Um, I think it's really hard in a multilateral environment to drive. Uh, Robust change because fundamentally if you have to bring 195 plus countries along there are gonna be a lot of contra- Compromises made along the way. I think it's great that they're doing it But I think it's really hard and so I wish them luck I hope that that they're able to to drive progress and drive some of the systemic change and big thinking that I think we need to do um, But I think there are also a lot of other important things that we should be doing in addition to that um, that still work with the community, but also work outside of these consensus-based decision-making processes that sometimes make it harder to, to do everything that we need to be doing, given the challenges.
0: Yeah, to follow up on that issue of sort of coordinating unanimous global action mm-hmm. amongst a bunch of countries, um, how do you think about disincentivizing uh, people from actually, de- or states from developing these weapons, even if accountability and attribution uh, might actually deter them ultimately from like, using them?
1: Yeah, so I would say deterrence in the in the form of you know attribution and accountability works most effectively if a state is trying to do something sneaky and evade detection. If a country is trying to do some sort of gray zone attack and um, and get away with it and not be not be caught, those kinds of tools are really effective. And I think that that's still a really important um, I think that's a really important piece of the puzzle because a lot of the risk I think comes from there. But I also think that we have to get better at um, making countries understand that they might get caught even if they're just developing a covert weapons capability in violation of the convention without necessarily the intention to use it or holding it in reserve for some. Um, and I think an important piece of that, um, in addition to everything else I said, is intelligence. I think we have to have much better biosecurity intelligence capabilities than we do have right now and higher confidence that if something like that were happening, we would detect it. Um, and I'm really hopeful that um, governments place a higher priority on that work. And I also think it's interesting to explore the question of open source intelligence and what kind of what does that have to offer for this space.
0: So the answer is intelligence, but also I guess that gets us back to one of the issues that you referred to in your talk, which is um, the ability or the willingness uh, off countries to actually do something about that intelligence and enforce these standards um, yeah I wanted to see if you have anything more to say substantively on kind of uh, ideas you might have or things that we might be able to do uh, to, uh, to just see more um, intent from from players in, on the global suit
1: meaning like countries to demonstrating resolve to that, actually that's right. take action. yeah as opposed
0: to the case that we that you alluded to with the chemical weapons
1: yeah I mean I think the I think the challenges that I highlighted with in sort of uh, uh, providing accountability for violations of the Chemical Weapons Convention are a big red flag. And I think that we need to, if we're serious about preventing development and use of bioweapons, we have to do better than that. Um, I think it's a really hard problem. But I do think that um, in order for deterrence to be effective against development and use, we just need, countries really need to signal resolve to actually take action. um, And we have to have something more in place structurally than we have right now.
0: Got another one uh, that brings us back to sort of the realm of what people could do. Is there room to build evidence of GCBR accident potential to dissuade states from bioweapons development?
1: Oh, so you're basically saying, can you show that it's actually really risky to develop a nasty biological capability and there could be an accident and maybe you're underestimating that risk and it could like destroy the world and therefore. I
0: I think that is the intent behind the question whoever asked it. can.
1: Um, that's an interesting idea. Um, I mean, I think that I think that that's you know conceptually it reminds me a lot of the kind of work that's been done in other domains, including in nuclear work, where even countries that don't that are that don't necessarily get along, even the United States and Russia during the height of the Cold War, there were still track to discussions among scientists about how we can engage in. Um, nuclear arms control, because fundamentally, we have a shared interest in not obliterating the planet that we share. Um, And so uh, given, I think those kinds of arguments were used in that case, and it sounds like that's a similar kind of argument you could use in this context, appealing to shared interests, even if you don't agree on like 99% of things with your adversary, you can agree on the fact that we have one planet that we wanna live in and we don't wanna destroy it, and let's just make sure that we um, at least um, don't make unforced errors that could that hold everyone at risk. So I think it's an interesting idea. I, it has some conceptual precedent in other domains.
0: Yeah, and since you worked in uh, nuclear security as well, this, mm-hmm. this might be interesting. Uh, are there any concrete lessons to draw from inspections done by the IAEA or the nuclear industry?
1: I think they're really different. Um, I think that they're prob, I think the analogies are probably well, okay. So I would say the analogies are probably closer to chemical weapons inspection than than um, nuclear. But I will say I think th- there's one concept that I think is really interesting, which is the, this idea of shrouding, which is or or like um, I think it's called managed access, where when un- when there are third parties that come into a, a facility to to sort of do verification like so there's like there are two kinds of visits there're safeguards for countries that are non-nuclear weapon states making sure that they're not diverting fissile material from a civilian facility to nuclear to nuclear weapons and then there are actual um i think there's like various transparency measures that are part of arms control regimes where uh nuclear weapon states will visit each other's sites and make sure that they're Sticking to the count that they said that they they weren't going to exceed the numbers or exceed the parameters that they had agreed to in their treaty. And I think there, you know, in these kinds of setups, there's like managed access where you allow the uh, visitors to sort of see what they need to see in order to answer the questions that are at the heart of the inspection, but you don't necessarily let them see everything. And I think that's a concept that can apply in the biospace. And in fact, we'll have to if we're going to have like meaningful transparency and access while still protecting either national security secrets. Or um, intellectual property.
0: Um. But
1: I will say that what's different is that part of the reason it doesn't translate very easily is just um, there are just like one, two, or three orders of magnitude more facilities that we would have to visit on a bio. Um, for some sort of biotransparency regime as compared to nuclear facilities are just very limited in number and so it's a much more tractable problem for that reason and then nuclear um, materials are just finite in quantity whereas biological materials are potentially infinite there's you can grow them and replicate them so there are there are properties that make them really qualitatively different
0: and I guess this points to sort of the need for innovation in terms of analyzing things like financial data or other tools that we could use to sort of uncover. uh, Yeah, I mean, I think,
1: so, I mean, nuclear weapons are very separate from the economy, whereas biology is fundamentally embedded in the economy, and in fact, biology is being used to build the bioeconomy. And so it's a radically different dynamic, and so we have to think outside the box. We're gonna think about something that is, Um, underpinning our economy that is being used uh, for all these beneficial purposes um, and it's dual use and highly distributed, how do we like watch that and make sure that it's not being exploited? That's really different from nuclear weapons which are really um, inside classified programs are really contained and separate so that that's a way in which it's totally different and that's why we have yeah we have to use different kinds of tools.
0: And could you speak a little bit about that problem of uh, and this does relate to dual use in a way but but, but in in a slightly different dimension, which is especially for developing countries that do see this as essential research to sort of, or potentially lucrative research of bioscience, Mm -hmm. uh, and how that might intertwine with the problem of inspection or, or regulating uh, certain types of dual-use research?
1: Yeah, so I think that's a really important point. I think, you know, and this is something that we talk, up, when we talk about, so in addition to this work that I'm describing about sort of shaping intentions of states and, you know, making bioweapons unattractive, we talk a lot about how we safeguard bioscience and biotechnology to prevent exploitation. Um, and when we talk about that, um, we always in the same breath say, like, it has tremendous upside potential, it can drive, you know, public health benefits, um, and you know, uh, advanced m- medicine. It can um, drive economic development. It can help us cl- combat climate change, um, and so we want to make sure that we can har- you know, benefit from all from all that while still safeguarding. And that's critical. If you don't acknowledge the upside of the science and technology, you have a really hard time bringing onside the people that you need to bring onside. And in fact, I think. Um, the global south is really focused on economic development which i you know makes a lot of sense and we you know of course fully support it and and biology is a way to help them do that um, and we have to i think that given that there's a there's a defi- political divide between the global north and the global south and there's some suspicion from parts of the global south that the, the north is just trying to stop them from developing or prevent them from getting the technology they they're going to need to compete um, I think we have to do everything we can to avoid that misperception, and in fact, I think the COVID, the COVID pandemic has exacerbated it. So the global South saw that the global North had all their vaccines and they got them first, and they and global South really like had very limited and delayed access. And I think that has actually made this problem worse, and it makes us harder to do this work together because that is the lesson they took away from COVID: is like you guys have all the money, you have all the power, you have the capacity, um, you're not taking care of our interests. We want to talk about. Equity of, like equitable access and distribution. And, in, and every time that you try to have a conversation, like the kind of conversation I'm talking about or governance of technology, equitable access comes up and it's real. I mean, I think the, I think the COVID experience has really made developing countries feel like they have to fight for their share of access to technology and benefits. And that's what they wanna talk about. And if you wanna have a conversation with them about safeguards, um, it's, it's complicated. So you have to make sure that you're aware of where they're coming from.
0: So I think we're almost coming up on time. The last question I have is, um, you, co- you mentioned some of the gaps that might exist in current international institutions and structures, mm-hmm. uh, but, but also you, know, you work regularly with the, with the UN and the w- and WHO, mm-hmm. could you talk a little bit about mechanistically, uh, what are the realms in which there is deeper collaboration and, and, and where you sort of supplement their efforts?
1: Sure. I mean, I think you know fundamentally, um, in order for us to be effective, we have to work collaboratively with the UN system, um, including the UN Secretary General's office and WHO, um, for I mean, for a number of reasons. First of all, it's in our interest. I mean, they're critical; they provide critical services. We don't want to undermine them or for them to feel undermined. And also, politically, they have legitimacy internationally. And so, if you're perceived as running afoul of those institutions, you're not going to get anywhere. Um, and so I think um, a lot of the work that we do is designed to really strengthen those really important institutions. So um, for example, if you know if we're gonna tackle as a community or within an organization, work work to come up with ideas about how we can improve enhance transparency, you know, one thing we could do, given that there's this working group. Um, that's going on right now during the BWC intercessional process. If we, as a community, could show up and say, "Hey, you guys want to talk about trans- enhanced transparency? Here are a bunch of ideas. We put in a lot of hours, and we figured out like some proposals. Um, why don't you think about this?" Um, or um, You know, the WHO just put out their global guidance framework for oversight of dual use bioscience research. Um, And that's a really important high level document. It's just to set the stage for what countries around the world are expected to do in principle. But it's going to take a lot of work to make that real in practice. And so there's this, you know, what we're really interested in doing. In our biotech governance work is figuring out like what are the tool practical tools you can put in place to make that real and give that regime some teeth so that the 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 practices that governments put in place actually concretely reduce risk. It's not just a normative discussion, it's a practical risk reduction effort that has consequences. Um, for the UN, you know, I think something, you know, the work that we're doing for the joint assessment mechanism that I described is designed to strengthen the current system. I think. You know, fundamentally we want to make sure that it reinforces the UN Secretary General's mechanism and it's helpful to WHO and they're working together as an integrated system. So we spend a lot of time talking to people in WHO and in the UN Secretary General's office to explain what are the gaps we see, what is the proposal we're putting on the table, um, how we're offering to help. And I think fundamentally if we want to create the kind of systemic change and the big solutions that I'm talking about, um, those kinds of engagements are critical and the peop- you know those systems need to see that you're a constructive player that's collaborating with them and working towards shared goals um, and so we spend a lot of time on that um, and I think it does actually i mean it can be um, if you want to drive change quickly it can be really frustrating because it takes a really long time to convince... you know if you have Uh, sort of conventional institutions that have power and like you're coming with a new idea, they're not gonna necessarily agree with you quickly. You have to be really persistent. You have to come to them with credible expertise and people that they respect. You have to make rational arguments. You have to keep at it. You have to work globally to build political support. You have to say, listen, it's not just me and my NGO, but like I've, you know, these like 30 governments Agree that this is a good idea, and they politically support it. And you have like they have your back if you want to go for it. So there's just a lot of. In addition, so I w- like one way to think about it is, you know, this work is maybe 10% inspiration and 90% perspiration. So you've got to come up with the ideas, which is like the inspiration part, and then like 90% perspiration is like getting buy-in, um, and that's not easy, but it's critical. And maybe it's even like one to five percent inspiration and like 95 to 99% perspiration. Um, So uh, that's also part of the work. So there's just a ton of different kinds of work you can do. There's the technical work and coming up with the ideas and solving hard technical problems on the one hand. And then you have the sort of building political support and coalitions and and like driving change. And so all of that, those are all things that you need to do to to drive meaningful progress in this space.
0: Well, on that inspirational note, uh, thank you, Jamie. Thank you.
1: Thanks for your question.